Part One, Chapter Four of If Winter Comes by A. S. M. Hutchinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. The other end of the daily bicycle ride, the Tidborough end, provided no feats of cycling interest. The extremely narrow, cobbled thoroughfare in which the offices of Fortune, East, and Sabre were situated usually caused Sabre's approach to them to be made on foot, wheeling his machine. Fortune, East, and Sabre, ecclesiastical and scholastic furnishers and designers, had in Tidborough what is called, in business and professional circles, a good address. A good address for a metropolitan money-maker is the West End in the neighborhood of Bond Street. A good address for a solicitor is Bloomberry in the neighborhood of Bedford Square. For an architect, Westminster is the neighborhood of Victoria Street. For commerce in the city, in the neighborhood of the bank. The idea is that, though clothes do not make the man, a good address makes, or rather bestows the reputation, and conveys the impression that the owner of the good address, being in that neighborhood, is not within many thousands of miles, or pounds, of the neighborhood of bankruptcy. The address of Fortune, East, and Sabre was empathetically a good address, because its business was with the church, and for the church, with colleges, universities, and schools, and for colleges, university, and schools with bishops, priests, and clergy, church wardens, headmasters, headmistresses, governors, and bursars. Its address was the precincts, Fortune, East, and Sabre, the precincts, Tidborough. The precincts has a discreet and beautiful sound, a discreet and beautiful suggestiveness. High Street, Tidborough, or Cheapside, Tidborough, or Commercial Street, Tidborough, have only to be compared with the precincts, Tidborough, to establish the discretion and beauty of the situation of the firm. And the names of the firm are equally euphonious and equally suggestive of high decorum and cultured efficiency. Fortune East and Sabre had a discreet and beautiful sound. Finally, Tidborough, the last line of the poem, though not in itself either discreet or beautiful, being intensely busy, suggested to all the cultured persons from bishops to bursars, with whom the business was done, the discreet and beautiful lines of Tidborough Cathedral and of Tidborough School, together with all of these venerable famous institutions connoted. Not Winchester itself conveys to the cultured mind thoughts more discreet and beautiful than are conveyed by Tidborough. The care of the cathedral, for many years in a highly delicate state of health, and the care of the school, yearly ravaged by successive generations of the sons of those who could afford to educate their sons, there were, it may be mentioned, established sources of income to the firm. Thus the whole style and title of the firm had a discreet and beautiful sound, in admirable keeping with its business. Fortune, East, and Sabre, The Precincts, Tidborough was any one so utterly removed from affairs as not to know them as ecclesiastical furnishers? They're at Tidborough. They do Tidborough, meaning world-famous cathedral. Or as scholastic providers? They're at Tidborough. They do Tidborough, meaning the empire-famous school. The frontage of Fortune East and Sabre on the precincts consisted of a range of three double-fronted shops. The central shop gave one window to a superb lectern in the style of a brass eagle whose outstretched wing supported a magnificent bible to a richly embroidered altar-cloth in which stood a strikingly handsome set of communion plate to a font chastely carried out in marble to an altar-chair in oak and velvet that few less than a suffragan bishop would have dared take a seat in 
and to an example or two of highest art in needlework and embroidery in the form of offertory bags and testament markers. The other window of the central shop was a lesson to the profane in the beauty, the dignity, and the variety of vestments. It also informed rural choir-boys, happily in Tidborough on retreat, what surplices can be had if the funds and the faith are sufficiently high to support them. The windows of the shop to the left, as you faced the lectern and the vestments, displayed school furniture and school fittings bearing the characteristic F, E, and S stamp. Here were adjustable desks for boys at which no boy could possibly sit round-shouldered, which could be adjusted upwards for tall boys and downwards for short boys and the seats of which could be advanced for boys afflicted with short legs and retired for boys in possession of long legs it was believed by those who had seen the full range of f e and s desk models that if a headmaster or bursar had telegraphed to fortune east and saber the arrival of a siamese twin boy at his school a desk specially contrived for the nice accommodation of a siamese twin boy would have been put on the railway before the telegraph messenger had loitered his way out of the shadow of the precincts. By an ingenious contrivance, ink could not be spilt from the ink-wells of the F, E, and S models. Rubber beating most properly nullified the boy's idea that desk lids were made for the purpose of slamming into blazes the nerves of masters and the calm in which alone highest education can be served. Equal skill, science, art, and the experience of generations had produced the model of a master's desk, which partnered the desks of the pupil. Maps of as many countries as might be desired showed in frames up and down which they followed one another by the silent turning of a handle. A blackboard on an easel looked across the desks at a wall which was let a solid slab of blackboard. The window adjoining this display exhibited a miniature classroom in which the F, E, and S system of classroom ventilation maintained air so pure and fresh that the most comatose pupil could not but keep alert and receptive in it. The shop front to the right paid testimony to the standing of fortune, East and Sabre, in their capacity as educational and ecclesiastical book publishers and binders. One window gave Chasley, on purple velvet, not more than two, or at most three, exquisitely wrought Bibles and prayer-books for lectern and altar. The other showed, severely, on green bays, school textbooks of every subject and degree grouped about superbly handsome prize-volumes in blue calf displaying the classic arms of Tidborough School. Public entrance to these premises was gained by doors of the central shop only. It was considered proper, and in keeping with the times, to have window displays but it was considered improper and out of keeping with the traditions of fortune east and sabre to present more than the extreme minimum of shoppish appearance you entered therefore but by one door which was moreover not a shop door but a church door and one of the several models which fortune east and sabre had designed and executed you entered between the vestments and the lecterns not a shop but a vestry and you passed on the left not into a shop, but into a classroom. On the right, not into a shop, but into a book-lined study. It is said that if you loitered long enough in Fortune East and Sabres, you would meet every dignitary of the church and of education in the United Kingdom. And it was added that you would not have to wait long. Fortune East and Sabre, the precincts, Tidborough. 
Maintaining the unshop-like character of the ground-floor rooms upon which the plate-glass windows looked, virtually no business, in the vulgar form of buying and selling, was carried on in the vestry, in the classroom, or the book-lined study. Many modern and entirely worthy businesses are conducted under the strident banner of cash only. Fortune East and Sabres did not know the word cash. One would as soon look for or expect a till. To say nothing, of course, of those terrific machines known as cash registers, in the vestry, the classroom, or the study, as one would look for a lectern or an adjustable school desk in a beer house. Credit only was here the principal, and accounts were rendered, never on delivery but quarterly. One does not, after all, pay for a font out of one's trouser pocket and carry it off under one's arm, nor for a school desk out of a purse and bear it away on one's head. Only in the book-lined study were trifling transactions occasionally carried out, and these very rarely, constituting something of an event, and an event greatly depreciated by the Reverend Sebastian Fortune. The tactless misadventure of some pedagogue or student on excursion to the sites of Tidborough. No one, in any case, committed twice the indiscretion of purchasing a single volume for cash. The book-line study was in the care of Mr. Toombs, a gentleman who combined the appearance of a mute at a funeral with the aloof and mysterious manner of a man waiting for his wife in a lady's underwear department, and the peculiar faculty of making the haphazard visitor feel that he had strayed into a lady's underwear shop also. "'Have you an account with us, sir?' Mr. Toombs would inquire, and on being told, "'No,' would look guiltily all around, as it were at partially undressed ladies, and whisper, "'Except to the masters at the school, sir, who all have accounts. We are not supposed to sell single volumes. It is against our rule, sir.' And no one, once escaped, made Mr. Toombs break the rule a second occasion. Business, on credit only, was conducted on the first floor where apartmented the three principals, the Reverend Sebastian Fortune, Mr. Twining, and Sabre. There was no longer an east in the firm. From the central, vestry-like showroom, a broad and shallow stairway led to a half-landing containing the clerk's office, and thence to the spacious apartment of Mr. Fortune by which, by doors at either end, communicated the office of Sabre and Mr. Twining, and many stately eminent persons, and no ill-to-do or doubtful persons, passed up and down this stairway on visits to the principals. It was not used by clerks. The half-landing communicating with the outer world by the clerk's stairs leading to the clerk's entrance at the back of the building, and with the showrooms by the clerk's stairs leading at one end to the book-line study, and at the other to the classroom model. The clerk's office, by taking down of original walls, ran the whole length of the building, and accommodated not only the clerks, but the designing room, the checking room, and the dispatch room. This arrangement was highly inconvenient to the performers of the various duties thus carried on, but it was essential to the more rapid execution of Mr. Fortune's habit of keeping an eye on everything. This habit of the Reverend Sebastian Fortune was roundly detested by all on whom his eye fell. He was called Jonah by his employees, and he was called Jonah partly because his visits to the places of their industry invariably presaged disaster but principally for the gross-minded and wrongly adduced person that he had, in their opinion, a whale's belly. He bore a certain resemblance to a stunted whale. 
He was chiefly abdominal. His legs appeared to begin, without thighs, at his knees, and his face without neck, at his chest. His face was large, both wide and long, and covered as to its lower part with a tough scrub of grey beard. The line of his mouth showed through the scrub and turned extravagantly downward at the corners. He had a commanding, heavily knotted brow, and small grey eyes of intense severity. His voice was cold, and his manner, though intensely polished and suave, singularly stern and decisive. He had an expression of, I have decided, and Sabre said that he kept this expression on ice. It had an icy sound, and it certainly had the rigidity and imperviousness of an iceberg. Hearing it, one might believe that it could have a cruel sound. The Reverend Sebastian Fortune had come into business at the age of twenty-eight. He was now sixty-two. He had come in to find the controlling interest almost entirely in the hands of the Fortune branch of the firm. And in his thirty-four years of association, indeed in his first twenty, he had, by fortuitous circumstances, and by force of his decisive personality, achieved what amounted to sole and single control. Coming in as a young man of force and character, he had added to these qualities by marriage, a useful sum of money, to which was attached a widow, and proceeded to deal decisively with East and the Sabre, Mark Sabre's grandfather, of that day. Both were old men. The East, young Mr. Fortune, bought out neck and crop. The Sabre, who then owned a fifth, instead of a third interest in the business, and had developed, as an obsession, an unreasonable fear of bankruptcy, he relieved of all liability for the firm at the negligible cost of giving himself a free hand in the conduct of the business. The deed of partnership was altered accordingly. It was to this fifth share, without control, that Sabre's father, and in his turn, Sabre, succeeded. Sabre had been promised a full partnership by Mr. Fortune. He desired it very greatly. The apportionment of duties in the establishment was that Sabre managed the publishing department. Twining supervised the factory and workshops wherein the ecclesiastical and scholastic furniture was produced, and Fortune supervised his two principals, and every least employee and the smallest detail of all the business, particularly orders. He very strongly objected to clients dealing directly with either Sabre or Twining. His view was that it was the business of Sabre and Twining to produce the firm's commodities. It was his place to sell them. It was his place to deal with the clients who came to buy them, and it was his place to sign all letters that went out concerning them. Sabre, insofar as his publications were concerned, resented this. "'If I bring out a new textbook,' he had said on the occasion of a formal protest, "'it stands to reason that I am the person to interest clients in it, to discuss it with them if they call, and to correspond with those who take up notices of it. Mr. Fortune wheeled about his revolving chair by a familiar trick of his right leg against his desk. It presented his whale-like front to an impressive advantage. You do correspond with them. But you sign the letters. You frequently make alterations. That is what I am here for. They are my letters. It will be time to bring this matter up again when you are admitted to partnership. Sabre gave the short laugh of one who has heard a good thing before. When will that be? Not today. Well, all I can say is, 
Mr. Fortune raised his whale-like but elegantly white fin. Enough! I have decided. With the same clever motion of his feet, he spun his chair and his whale-like front to the table. A worn patch on the carpet, and an abrased patch on the side of the desk, marked the frequent daily use of these thrusting points. Sabre kicked out of the room, using a foot to open the door which stood ajar, and hooking back a foot to shut it because he knew this slovenly method of dealing with the door much annoyed Mr. Fortune. He was not in the least in awe of Mr. Fortune, though Mr. Fortune had the power to sever him from the firm. Mr. Fortune was aware that he struck no awe into Sabre, and this caused him on the one hand to dislike Sabre, and on the other, subconsciously, for he would emphatically have denied it, to respect him. Twining, Sabre's fellow sub-principal, did stand in awe of Mr. Fortune, and did not resent having his letters signed for him and his callers interviewed for him. Indeed, he frequently took the opportunity to thank Mr. Fortune for alterations made to his letters, and for dealings carried out with his clients, also for direct interference in his workshops. Mr. Fortune liked Twining, but he did not respect Twining, consciously or subconsciously. Sabre greatly desired the promised admission to partnership, he desired it largely for what he knew he would make it bring in the form of greater freedom from Mr. Fortune's surveillance, but much more for the solid personal satisfaction its winning would give him. It would be a tribute to his work, of all the greater value because he knew it would be bestowed grudgingly and unwillingly, and he was keenly interested in and proud of his work. The publishing of educational textbooks for the use of schools had been no part of the firm's business until he came into it. The idea had been his own, and Mr. Fortune, because the idea was not his own, had half-heartedly assented to it, and very discouragingly looked upon it in the fiddling small way in which he permitted it to be begun. From the outset it had been a very considerable success. Sabre was interested in books and interested in education. He had many friends among the large staff of Tidborough schoolmasters, and had developed many acquaintances among the large body of members of the teaching profession, with whom the firm was in touch. He was fond of discussing methods and difficulties of encouraging stubborn youth in the arid paths of assimilating knowledge, and he had a peculiarly fresh and sympathetic recollection of his own boyish flounderings in those paths. To these tastes and qualities, and perhaps because of them, he found he was able to bring what was incontestably a flair for discovering the sort of book that needed to be compiled, and what was equally important, the sort of man to compile it. Also, in his capacity of general editor of the volumes, to give much stimulating suggestion and advice to the authors. He had never been so pleased as on the day when the spectator, in an extended notice of four new textbooks, had been written. It is always a pleasure to open one of the school textbooks bearing the imprint of Fortune, East, and Sabre, and issued in the pleasing format which this firm have made their own. Their publications give the impression of directing mind, inspired with happy thought of presenting textbooks, not for the master but for the pupil, and of carrying out this design with singular freshness and originality. On the day when the notice appeared, Mr. Fortune, who considered that his mind was, or would supposed to be, the directing mind referred to, had repeated his promise of partnership, first made when the enterprise began to show unexpected signs of responding to Sabre's enthusiasm. 
"'Very good, Sabre, very good indeed. "'I'm bound to say capital. "'I may tell you, as your father probably told you, "'that it was always understood between him and me "'that you should be taken into partnership "'if you showed signs of promise. "'Unquestionably you do. "'When you have brought the publishing into line "'with our established departments, "'we will go into the matter, and,' "'he made one of his nearest approaches to pleasantry,' take steps to restore the house of sabre in some part to its ancient glories in the firm in some part and when sabre expressed his gratification enough i have decided in nineteen twelve sabre felt that he had now brought the publishing into line with the established departments he had emphasized the firm's reputation in this activity by considerable success that attended two textbooks bearing one in collaboration his own name Sabre and Owens, Elementary Mathematics. It had been notably taken up by the schools. Sabre's Modern History, shunned by the public schools in accordance with their principle of ignoring all history, mellowed by fewer than three thousand years, had been received enthusiastically by the lesser schools, was then donning the daring idea of presenting to the rising generation some glimmering conception of the constitutional and sociological facts into which it was arising the tributes with which this slim premiere of one hundred and fifty pages for eighteen pence had been greeted inspired sabre towards a much bolder work on which the early summer of nineteen twelve saw him beginning and into which he found himself able to pour in surprising volume of thoughts and feelings which he had scarcely known to be his until the pen and the paper began to attract them the title he had conceived alone stirred them in his mind, and drew them from it as a magnet stirs and draws iron filings. England. Just England. He could see it printed and published and renowned as Sabre's England. Kings were to enter this history, but incidentally, as kings have in fact ever been but incidental to England's history. It was to be just England. The England of the English people. And how and why. And the first sentence said so. This England, it said, is yours. It belongs to you. Many enemies have desired to take it because it is the most glorious and splendid country in the world. But they have never taken it because it is yours and has been kept for you. This book is to tell you how it has come to be yours and how it has been kept for you, not by kings or by statesmen or by great men alone, but by the English people. Down the long years they have handed it on to you as a torch is sent from hand to hand, and you in your turn will hand it on down the long years before you. They made the flame of England bright and ever brighter for you, and you, stepping into it all that they have made for you, will make it bright and brighter yet. They passed and are gone, and you will pass and go, but England will continue. Your England, yours. Mabel called Sabre's textbook those lesson books. After she had thus referred to them two or three times, he gave up trying to interest her in them. The expression hurt him. But when he thought upon it, he reasoned with himself that he had no cause to be hurt. He thought, dash it, that's what they are, lesson books. What on earth have I got to grass about? But they meant to him a good deal more than what was implied in the tone and expression, those lesson books. However, England was going to be something very different. No one would call England a lesson book. Even Mabel could see that, and his enthusiasm he spoke of it to her a good deal. Until the day it came up, 
of all unlikely connections in the world, in a discussion with her on the National Insurance Act, then first outraging the country. One day when English society was first shaken to its depths by the disgusting indignity of what Mabel, in common with all nice people, called licking stamps for that Lloyd George, she mentioned to Sabre that, well, thank goodness some of us know better than to steal the money out of the poor creature's wages. She knew that this would please her husband because he was always doing what she called sticking up for the servants and all that class. That it did not please him was precisely an example of his absolutely understandable ways of looking at things that so desperately annoyed her. Sabre asked, How do you mean, knowing better than to steal the money out of their wages? Why, making them pay for their thuppence for those wretched stamps. I believe Mrs. Castor does. How she's got the face to, I can't imagine. Why, aren't you going to make them pay, Mabel? Mabel was quite indignant. Is it likely? I should hope not. Really? Haven't you been making high and low pay their share of the stamps all this time? Of course I've not. You've been paying their contribution? Of course I have. Well, but Mabel, that's wrong, awfully wrong. She simply stared at him. You really are beyond me, Mark. What do you mean wrong? Well, it's not fair, not fair on the girls. Not fair to pay them more than their wages? No, of course not. Don't you see? Half the idea of the act is to help those people to learn thrift and forethought, to learn the wisdom of putting by for a rainy day, and to encourage their independence. When you go and pay what they ought to pay, you're simply taking away their independence. She gave her sudden burst of laughter. You're the first person I've heard say that the lower classes want their independence and courage. It's just what's wrong with them, independence. He began to talk with animation. This was one of those things that much interested him. He seemed to have quite forgotten the origin of the conversation. No, it isn't, Mabel. It isn't. That's jolly interesting, that point. It's their independence that's wrong with them. They're nearly all of them absolutely dependent on an employer. And that's bad, fatal for anybody. The root of the whole trouble with less educated classes, if people could only see it, what they want is pride in themselves. They just slop along taking what they can get and getting so much for nothing, votes and free this, that and the other, that they don't value it in the least. They're dependent all the time. What you want to help them to is independence, pride in themselves and confidence in themselves, that sort of independence. You know, all this talk they put up with, or that's put up for them, about their right to this and their right to that, of course you can't have a right to anything without earning it. That's what they want to be shown, see? And that's what they want to be given, the chance to earn the right to things, see? Well, this Insurance Act business, she laughed again. I was beginning to wonder if you were ever coming back to that. He noticed nothing depreciatory in her remark. Yes, rather, well, this Insurance Act business, that's really a jolly good example of the way to do things. You see, it's not giving them the right to free treatment when they're ill. It's giving them the chance to earn the right. That's what you want to explain to high and low. See, you want to say to them, it's your show, your very own. Fine. You're building this up. I'm helping. You're helping all sorts of poor devils, and you're helping yourself at the same time. You're stacking up a great chunk of the state, and it belongs to you. 
England's yours, and you want to pile it up all you know.' He was quite flushed. "'That's the sort of thing I'm putting into that book of mine. England's yours, you know. Precious beyond price, and therefore grand to be making more precious and more your own. I wish you'd like to see how the book is getting on, would you?' "'What book?' "'Why, England, I told you, you know, that history?' "'Oh, that lesson book. I wish you'd write a novel.' He looked at her. "'Oh, well,' he said. End of chapter 4 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceover-solutions.com